A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, I'm Stephen. No Helen this week, but I'm joined by a bumper cast of guest stars. Patrick joins me to talk about the parliamentary arithmetic, and Anoush joins me to talk about her meeting with the UN Special Investigator into Welfare and Poverty in the United Kingdom. I'm joined by our political correspondent, Patrick Maguire. Hello. So we're basically going to have a lot of hostages to fortune, which will all look very, very stupid very soon, in which basically we're going to do the what is going to happen with these looming votes. There is, of course, let's see if we can uh, get them all right. There's as well as a meaningful vote on the deal. There's the uh, three commons vote. Well, at least three commons votes, uh, four commons votes, first reading, second reading, committee stage and third reading of the withdrawal agreement and implementation bill. That obviously has to go through the Lords, where one assumes that it will pick up more than its fair share of amendments, not all of which I suspect the government will be able to get rid of in the Commons. So we have a number of votes in which it is difficult to work out how the government will get its way. Yeah, so um, let's, start, let's start with the easiest yeah. uh, and most watertight prediction first, which is the government doesn't have the votes to pass the withdrawal agreement in the first instance. Uh, the number of Tories and the DUP who have said for various reasons they can't vote for it is running at about 80. And there is no way you peel off anywhere near enough of those people unless you, you know, give them brain transplants. Yeah, and crucially, yeah, the the other problem with, with that is that although, you know, are there in... No, I don't think there are in theory more. Than, there are basically, I would say, probably about 40 Labour MPs who might consider... Uh, under some circumstances, voting to prevent no deal, knowing that that would be their last act in in Labour politics, very probably knowing that it would end up with a Brexit that they don't like, etc. However, none of those people are going to, you know, one Labour MP likened it to, have you ever seen that very old sketch in Beyond the Fringe? You know, Perkins, we need a pointless sacrifice. For as as an Alan Bennett fan, yeah. uh, as someone who identified as Alan Bennett for a period of their teenage years, I'm ashamed to say I haven't. Um, it's very good. It's basically you know, you, what we need at this stage of the war is a pointless sacrifice. It will raise the whole tone of the war. And this MP, I asked how they did it, and they basically essentially did the whole sketch at me. They went, you know, like they they said, "Well, I'm all for it," said, but it's a bit like you know, like you know, MP's name. You know, we need a you know, like your sacrifice will raise the whole tone of Brexit. Um, so yeah, that that feels uh, watertight. Then there is the question of what happens next. Uh, that's more. I don't think anybody knows. Uh, Labour certainly don't know, given their sort of slightly deranged position on the backstop, backstop today. I don't think Labour uh, Labour leadership certainly doesn't know what it wants to do next or what it can do next. Mm. Still less. So let's say that some of our listeners and indeed 
some of our podcast hosts, uh, did not watch PMQs. What is Labour's new position on the backstop? Right. So Corbyn uh, is sounding like a member of the DUP, uh, which is a weird sentence to that anyone, no one could imagine saying that sentence about Jeremy Corbyn at any point until last week. Basically, he says, you know, this, the, the backstop creates a border in the Irish Sea. I mean, that's debatable given it only creates new goods checks on goods going from Great Britain to Northern Ireland. And basically, what that means is it sharply limits Labour's ability to accept any backstop at all, right? Because in the huddle afterwards, uh, Corbyn's spokesman, when, when asked about this, he said, well, you know, we are signing up to, uh, uh, we want a permanent UK customs union, which obviously mostly, and that's the most important bit of that sentence, mostly removes, removes the need for border checks, right? Uh, and at that point, you go, well, hang on, if you don't want to border down the Irish Sea, and all you're saying is we've got a customs union, and you don't want to accept a backstop, then how are you going to sign a with Withdrawal agreement. Either being disingenuous or they haven't thought it through or both, uh, which I think is symptomatic of the sort of bind they're in as to what their long term strategy is. They're very good at tactics in this Brexit game, i.e., let's punch the bruise that's most painful for Theresa May. But in terms of, okay, well, we've voted the deal down now. What the hell do we do now? How do they finesse the transition from, okay, we voted down the deal to, okay, we're staring down the barrel of a no deal? it's hard to see how we trigger that election and our MPs are freaking out. How do they finesse that transition? And can they? Well, yeah, I mean, this is, yeah, I think that is to me the kind of the central questions, right? So I know at this point, a lot of our listeners will be screaming, well, what about a people's vote? I mean, I, I'm afraid I just cannot work out the, I can, I can you know, I, I can accept this idea that it is plausible that somehow in lieu of, right, if you're, if you're the Conservative Party, right, I think, you know, the one thing we can, we could say is the Conservative Party will not want an election while Brexit is not resolved because, I mean, you would just see a party disintegrating live on air, right? You, We have, what, 316, 20? Mm. There's 300 and something Tory MPs, a number embarrassing. Yeah, 317, two are suspended for the whip. No. So there's 315. Um, 315 Tory MPs, right? So you would essentially have at least 315 Brexit uh, positions. Uh, you would have people saying, you know, Ultra Remain is saying people vote. You'd have a couple of people doing the Ken Clark, I believe in parliamentary democracy. We're just going to, yeah, like, you yeah. know, I didn't vote for the referendum and I don't back it. You'd have some people who basically would go, oh God, Lib Dems have won a council ward in my, in my, you know, in, in a by election. I am now, you know, the Remainers Remainer. You'd have someone being like, I hear you, sir. You would essentially have a party with over 300 Brexit policies publicly fighting itself. Uh, I just I cannot work out how the Conservatives could emerge from a snap election as a viable governing project. I'm not saying they couldn't emerge as the largest party, but this is what this is what interests me about Labour's uh, stated preference for a general election. Right? I mean, their only solace in that election is that their divisions aren't quite as well. They're not terminal in the way that the Tories would be. They're not quite as pronounced and not quite as sort of uncauterizable as as the Tories are. Right? I mean, what what Brexit position does you know? I don't feel that there's any electoral event that is risk-free for Labour either, you know, be a people's be a people's vote or a or an election. Yeah, I mean, my assumption, I, I agree that I don't think that my assumption of where they'll end up is, is risk-free, but my assumption, because they have always been very careful to kind of basically uh, do everything short of, uh, you know, ruling out, they basically, mm. you know, like, people's vote, you know, you know, it's run by awful people, has no chance of winning, not democratic, well, you know, we might do it. We're open to it. Disastrous idea, but we're open to it. You know, they basically trashed it. Up. They've they've trashed it in every way possible, other than ruling it out. Mm. And my suspicion is that the 
the least painful Brexit position for the Labour Party in an election is they've messed it up. We will do it better. We will do it somehow. And yeah, and we will have a and there will be a vote on the deal, right? As a kind of unifying thing than than the most of the parliamentary party will be able to get it get. And and yeah, and in that respect, the customs union policy, the sort of bedrock of on which, you know, the house of sand rests is actually, you know, it's both a fig leaf for division, but also it like actually solves one of the biggest problems, which is how the hell do we protect our supply chains and chains and manufacturing industries, right? It actually does a lot of the the legwork. Yeah, I mean, you I th- need to get to a sensible position. Yeah, I mean, I think, yeah. So we'll, we'll we'll come back to the kind of futures. I think some of the kind of you know, I can't remember who it was. One of the parody accounts when this kind of like day one of a Corbyn government, uh, you know, uh, Corbyn goes, here's this Brexit deal that you know the Tories just somehow couldn't sign. Oh yeah, Barney. Oh yeah, sure. So like, well, the thing is, is actually that is. Yeah, it, yeah. I'm not saying a Brexit where you're in the economic project, but not the political project, is is desirable for a, because it's not, in my view, for a variety of reasons. But the reason why the Labour Party could, in theory, sign up to it is although they are on paper opposed to the free movement of Labour, and my instinct is actually people are probably wrong when they think that the Labour Party would go. Actually, we're willing to to junk our opposition to the free movement of people for a better deal. It's plausible that they are. Right, that is not a projection that I I do not mm. feel confident in my yeah in my belief that on balance Labour's uh, Labour's anxieties around free movement uh, would continue to to be a, a present factor in in negotiations. They have significantly fewer red lines, so the landing zone for a Labour government is significantly larger. Mm. But I think yeah, the the big problem is seeing as I don't think either of us think that they can get an election uh, from the Brexit mess. Yeah. The big question is, right, you've tried for an election. You've tried for a people's vote. And supposing, you know, uh, you know, the, the great hope of MPs is that the meaningful vote will be amendable and before they've on the meaningful vote, they will have already passed an amendment that will say this House, you know, wants a second referendum or this House. What happens if, as I think is likely, there is no majority for a second referendum, uh, they can't get the election, they voted the withdrawal agreement down then, then what happens, I think, is the yeah. the big question and indeed the most likely scenario that we will find ourselves in. Yeah, because then uh, if you're the Labour Party, you have to find some way of finessing the fact that they will have lost control of their MPs at that point because um, the the fear of I will have blocked an election by voting for this deal will have gone because they will have tried for an election and, and failed it. The deal, the political imperative, uh, the very sensible political imperative to go, this deal's going to be a disaster. The last thing that we want as a Labour Party is to put our arms around it than they have will not have changed. The Lib Dems uh, bet on them being the beneficiaries of Brexit discontent. Uh, I feel very nervous about saying that it may turn out to have been a good bet, having thought it was a good bet before and uh, having been proved wrong. But it may turn out that actually that gambit has at that point started to bear mm. bear fruit. Let's say the Lib Dems are you know getting even to 13%. Probably not enough for seats, but it will be enough for Labour MPs who have a history of successful Lib Dem activity in their patches to start getting a little bit like, oh, we've got to vote against it. Actually, a Lib Dem recovery, if you look at the seats that uh, Labour's path to Downing Street slash majority runs through, uh, I obviously would say this, wouldn't I? But Southport, prime example, a lot of these seats where they've come uh, and and now second to the Tories, Lib Dems have fallen to third place. Lib Dems are only sort of second in 38 seats, I think it is now. Even a modest Lib Dem recovery where they leapfrog Labour or did a bit better in seats where Labour are challenging the Tories sort of nukes the path to Downing Street Labour is now taking for granted in the sort of in the English towns or whatever. So, I mean, like you say, like they don't have to be in a position where 
the number goes from 12 to 50 again. But, yeah. you know, they just need to be pulling a bit better. Uh, basically, it feels to me at least, and what I would want if I were in uh, the leader's office is a position where I could effectively turn around and go, we've tried, it's time mm. for us to be, uh, you know, we're the adults in the room. We've tried to have an election. You're hopelessly divided. We're going to pass a Brexit deal with you. But I can't work out how you can get to that position, given the things that uh, the Labour Party has done and said that make it hard for them to finesse that final stage. Of course, they may get an election, which I think the chance of an election feels significantly higher today than they have ever because of what is happening with the Conservatives and the DUP. Yeah, so the interesting thing is, I've been reading the Fixed Term Parliaments Act sort of every day since the uh, withdrawal agreement was published. And obviously, for listeners that don't know, the Act heavily circumscribes what, what a confidence vote is. So the House will, someone in the House will move the motion. Uh, the Commons has no confidence in Her Majesty's government. So the government loses that. Two weeks pass, and then there's another vote. Now, the, the interesting question that I once asked someone in the ERG uh, before the summer recess, they were, they you know kept talking about how their ambition was to kill the zombie of Chequers and May's government. I said, well, how do you kill a zombie? And they said, you know, you deploy a tactical delegation of nutters to vote against it in the first round of the Commons votes provided for, for the by the Fixed Term Parliament Act, and then support a new Tory government in the second. So what the ERG, if they can be said to exist as a whippable entity, although it doesn't matter given that the government has no majority and the 10 DUP MPs do in that second confidence vote is really interesting. But I don't see how they suddenly achieve all their strategic aims by keeping a Tory government with no majority in power. Because if there's a latent majority in the House of Commons for any Brexit, it's certainly not for Canada. And then you can't reconcile the aims of the ERG and the DUP, i.e. the easiest price for the ERG to pay for Canada is Northern Ireland, the DUP don't want any differentiation between GB and NI. Like, say the DUP and the ERG do get Don Raab or, you know, some equally doctrinaire Brexiteer, then what what the, what the hell do they do then? Like, what what does that parliament achieve? I mean, the answer is nothing, and then we're in the same situation again. Yeah, I mean, that... Slash, we're, you know, foraging for grubs to eat because we crashed out with a, with a deal. Yeah, I mean, this is the thing, isn't the yeah, the reason why I am uh, incredibly nervous about the next couple of months is I can't work out a way out of this, which doesn't involve either a huge amount of economic damage uh, and to, uh, economic damage to the country or a situation in which the only way I can work out to resolve that is for the Labour Party to decide to take a huge amount of political damage. And I can't conceive of a situation in which they would ever decide to do that certainly not yeah. now yeah i mean this this is the thing it's just not one of those things where um yeah i think yeah i kind of think i was about to say actually, i don't think it really matters in an odd way than uh people keep pretending that the brexit trade-off is politically mm. uh painless for for labor because even if people were honest with themselves about the amount of, of pain they are asking the labor party to absorb it's not like anyone uh, working for the Labour Party would go, oh, well, now you've articulated what our actual price that we'd pay for this is. It suddenly sounds like something we want to pay. So, so my, my question on what Labour would do in the, in the second vote uh, on the withdrawal agreement, if there indeed there is one, the TARP scenario, which you've written very uh, convincingly about uh, all this week, is what do they do then? Or what, does, what strategic decision does the leadership make? Because their objective throughout all this is... You know, in the words of one 
uh, lotto official uh, is the, the point of the six tests and the offer Corbyn made at conference when he said, you know, Theresa May will back your Brexit deal if you agreed to, you know, environmental protections, a uh, customs union and, you know, um, a new spade for my allotment. Uh, is that they didn't want to look like wreckers. Now, at what point does the we don't want to look like wreckers calculation, or, or, or indeed does it ever change to we don't want to look like wreckers, as in we don't want to facilitate a no deal that is going to sort of nuke the economy, or is that you know a worthwhile yeah. gamble to take? And are there a sufficient Labour rebels? And I think my my instinct is actually in some ways the decision kind of gets made for them because the the seventy odd Labour rebels who've rebelled to make Brexit softer. Who, although there are some exceptions who, when you talk to them, will go, <laughs> I'm not sure that this gamble's going to work out very well for Remainers. Uh, at the moment, they are essentially of one mind that you vote against the deal in the hope of getting a soft Brexit or a people's vote. Mm-hmm. I do think in that situation, in an odd way, right, those 70 MPs will probably go, actually, um, we tried, we failed, we just need to prevent no deal. Uh, and in some ways, that is kind of the, the one... Uh, the one path that I can see out of this uh, that I can imagine happening is a situation in which Labour's Remainers effectively, you know, nerf themselves as a tendency mm. uh, for at least, you know... Because they, they are more anti-hard-hard Brexit than they are pro-soft. That You know, fundamentally, the logical endpoint of their anti-hard Brexit position is that, you know, you prioritise something that isn't a hard Brexit, come what may rather than the super soft Brexit that you like. Yeah. It's in, and the question about the Labour leadership and what, what they do, some, someone said to, to me about the DUP, their dream scenario is that the withdrawal agreement is, agreement is passed without their votes. So could you sort of foresee like the Labour leadership with its MPs to abstain and then the deal is carried uh, on the sort of lower threshold by those 70 or so Labour remainers? Well, the thing is, I think I can, I think basically, you know, the, that you can one can sort of imagine uh, you know the kind of line of we've tried they're divided and helpless mm-hmm. we have to be the adult uh, if they can carry that off it doesn't matter whether or not they're carrying off to whip four or carrying four to abstain mm-hmm. uh it, it it works uh both ways the big question is whether or not they can pull that off whether or not they can pull it off in time um you know we ha- really have no idea what what a period of political chaos will do to public opinion particularly considering the public opinion let's face it is not being if you are someone who's not following that this closely, other than through like watching the BBC News at six or listening to music radio, um, bluntly, our public broadcaster is not preparing British voters for the idea that there could be food and medicine, medicine shortages. It's funny that, you know, in the 80s we had Protect and Survive, although I can't remember with Protect and Survive ever broadcast, but they were considerably more prepared for uh, a nuclear apocalypse on the balance, which on, looked probable, but on the balance of probabilities was probably not going to happen, then they are something that with every passing day becomes more and more likely. And there is no, you know, as I, as I you know, wrote when I filled in for your morning call uh, the week before last, you know, just because isn't a valid argument for why this deal will pass on the first or indeed second time of asking. All the evidence suggests it won't and can't and that there are no sort of parliamentary levers to pull to make it stop for all the, you know, Keir Starmer, now Amber Rudd line that, you know, oh, we can definitely stop no deal when, you know, actually that's just the default position. So why are we not talking about this with any real urgency? And why aren't the political actors actually thinking, God, we need to reckon with the fact that in four months' time we will crash out the EU without a deal and we are currently acting as if that prospect is, you know, two years. You know, people are acting as if they... Uh, still at the start of the Article 50 process, which we're very much not. Yeah, which I mean, I think kind of, I'm very aware that we have rattled on, but I think um, 
that is, I think, to me, the one uh, thing that would bring me a great deal of comfort uh, were I in the leader's office is that because public opinion is just completely unprepared for any type of turbulence, uh, the politics of Brexit could suddenly become very simple indeed if we get any turbulence mm. because... Um, yeah, the segue at the moment, then you know, the BBC would would be doing is Theresa May's under threat. Theresa May's under threat. Is Theresa May under threat? What's happening in the Tory Party? By the way, we're running out of insulin. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And at that point, the politics of you know the kind of the thorny politics may become less thorny. Of course, that's quite a terrifying situation mm. for the rest of us. Um, so yeah, hard to predict what will happen other than chaos. Really, I look forward to it. It's a great time to be a journalist if you don't have to live in this country for the rest of your life. For a couple of decades between the First and Second World Wars, something mysterious happened. There were murders in country houses, on golf courses, in far-flung parts of the globe and quaint English villages. No fictional character was safe. Because these events were all fictional, the plots of novels that flooded the market in the 1920s and 30s People couldn't get enough of all of the inventive ways that writers like Agatha Christie, Dorothy L. Sayers, and more could think of for people to die. This period came to be known as the golden age of detective fiction, and for good reason. So that's what I'm going to be doing in this podcast, telling the stories that lurk in the shadows of the famous detective novels. If you've ever stayed up late reading under the covers to find out who done it, then this podcast is for you. Find us at shedoneitshow.com on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram as She Done It Show and in all major podcast apps. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com I'm joined by Anoush Kellyan, our crumbling correspondent, who this week, oh God, I'm suddenly realising I'm about to use a word that I have written down but have never used out loud, went to the press conference of the UN's rapporteur? Rapporteur. Rapporteur. Yeah. Right. A needlessly pretentious job title, I think. The UN's expert person on welfare, poverty and inequality, essentially. Yeah, and human rights, yeah. And uh, they have been studying... Uh, the increase in poverty in the United Kingdom. Uh, they gave a press conference which you were at and then you sat down uh, alone for an interview. So, you know, tell us about it. It was one of the most scathing attacks on the effects of austerity in this country that we've basically had uh, since 2010, I think. Of course, the usual anti-austerity voices are charities, people who suffer from the actual policies and left-wing journalists. So we don't often get sort of someone who's supposed to be a neutral, independent, you know, he's a a lawyer in his 60s. He's a white, tall, white-haired man, someone who you wouldn't necessarily 
expect to be this sort of very, very aggressive voice against the impacts of austerity um, in the UK. And that's when people usually tend to sit up and listen when sort of a a, a neutral white man in a suit says it. Um, And this was in the UN building in the International Maritime Organization building across the river from Parliament in central London. And so it was sort of one of those rooms lined with desks with those little translation microphones on them as well. So there there was sort of this very official... Um, element to it that I think meant that lots of people who don't usually listen to, say, the whinings of uh, of me and the new statesman um, actually sat up and took notice. And it was the language he used as well. So, you know, he was saying that they, they've inflicted, the cuts have inflicted misery on people. And he was saying that if you've got a group of misogynists in the same room, you couldn't have come up with a, that different a policy, a welfare policy that punishes women and is much worse for women than men, um, which I thought was very strong. And he also said that the, that the uh, two-child benefit limit is is similar to the one-child um, policy in China, which was quite a provocative statement too. So everything basically that he said to do with the welfare and tax changes um, and local government cuts in the past near decade um, was was bad. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, so on that, yeah, obviously you are our kind of sort of social affairs uh, correspondent. You're the one who goes out and does most of our, our crumbling Britain strand. Was there anything in it that was surprising to you or was it pretty much what we would expect, as it were? Um, well, it wasn't surprising to anyone who's been following even, um, you know, partially these stories over the past few years. But something that was quite surprising was how he, who is supposed to be a diplomat, you know, someone who um, is supposed to be delivering a sort of dry and and sober report about the situation in this country, was very scathing about the current government, very scathing about ministers. He said they were in denial about the UK's policy uh, poverty challenge. Um, and he also said that they he, he thought that they would be getting the message because every MP that he spoke to said that all their constituents come to them about is universal credit and that kind of thing. But they're actually just choosing not to hear it. So he was basically accusing the government of willful blindness towards poverty in their own country. And I was quite surprised that he would be as bold to say that. And he also directly quoted um, a meeting that he had with Esther McVeigh, the former Work and Pensions Secretary, where she was very dismissive of the um, single household payments, which is one of the most controversial parts of universal credit. Um, and I was surprised that he would divulge sort of the the language of that meeting um, as well. So not surprising in terms of what he found, but surprising in how strongly he delivered the message. And I think that's something that the government has really picked up on and used as a defence against his findings. Yeah, so uh, Amber Rudd, uh, our, our new... Uh, yeah, we have this weird situation where we now live in a country in which uh, the new work and pension secretary is someone who uh, resigned after misleading MPs, replacing someone who did not resign after misleading MPs. So, you know, accountability and norms are, are alive and well in the British Constitution. <laughs> um, was briefed to, I think, Laura Koonsberg of the BBC, then um, she would have a, a different tone on uh, welfare. I mean, it was certainly a different accent, but it was <laughs> essentially the kind of same sort of same message. As you say, she talked about, you know, the, the language of it was, was unfair. And I, I can't work out if I'm doing this kind of thing where everyone remembers the past more favourably. And obviously, I remember people telling me then what I've written is not true more keenly if it happened a week ago than if it happened a year ago. But I feel there's been a really 
um, bizarre to my eyes um, rhetorical shift in than what used to happen when you had stories of, you know, bits of the state uh, struggling under the strain, uh, hardship in uh, family life as a result of, of these cuts. You basically go, uh, yeah, it's painful, but, you know, it's hurting, but it's working. We've got to get the debt under control. And now it feels instead you get this kind of, no, 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 there is no pain. Um, yeah, so I mean, I think um, you might re- people, your our listeners might remember Esther McVeigh saying that it was fake news stories, all of these terrible stories of people um, experiencing the switch over to universal credit were having. Um, there is this like blindness towards it, which is something Philip Alston, who is the UN special rapporteur, pointed out. Amber Rudd said that she was against the the extremely political language of his report without really engaging with what what he'd found and i think that's really disingenuous because when you're when you're not engaging with what what someone's actually saying and you're just saying oh but the, the rhetoric is so bad you know that, that that there is a problem there and under george osborne you know who started this whole austerity agenda there was like you say there was the admission that that part of it was going to be painful so you'll remember that he kept saying we're all in this together i mean that wasn't true but the implication of that was we're all going through something quite difficult. Yeah. Um, and now that aspect of the difficulty of the cuts is just is just being completely ignored, which which is really unsustainable because the actual impact of the cuts is now far wider reaching than than it was in the first place. Yeah, I mean, this is the uh, yeah, I think for me, there were one there were there were many interesting moments uh, during Amber Rudd's first appearance as working pension secretary for the House. Not least, actually, you could really tell how unpopular the agendas for carbon think you had. Essentially, an almost full house from the opposition parties. You know, um, almost every kind of major figure of the opposition, not just the welfare leads, but basically mm-hmm. everyone other than uh, you know, of course, Jeremy Corbyn as leader of the opposition does not ask questions in that situation. But uh, with the exception of Corbyn himself, uh, a who's who of opposition MPs anyone might have heard of were in the chamber making making points. Uh, she did not have what's just called a donut of you know MPs for the for the cameras, so she looked deserted. And even on her own side, you had questions, you know, from Chris Philp, a man who I've never heard say something critical about the government uh, before in his life, going, "Actually, look, I have some quite detailed questions about things I would like to be fixed." Desmond Swain, who Brexit aside, is generally a loyalist, going about this. Um, it's weird because occasionally I think I have just been. Um, completely numbed to terrible stories about the universal credit. But I realize I am really uh, haunted by the um, the woman whose mother had variant CJD. So she was brain damaged in the womb. And now she is potentially go- uh, her grandmother, who's had to care, who has cared for her her entire life. They, they are having their benefits cut as a result of these changes, and they may have to sell their bungalow. You had a question about, about that from Desmond Swain. And then um, oh, I'm going to have a brain freeze. But her her constituency neighbour went, oh, well, we've had this rollout for ages. And, you know, basically it's all fine. And it's one of those things where it's just like, but it's, I mean, it's not fine. I mean, as case in point, the parliamentary majority in Hastings, given that it is a small mm-hmm. town that voted to leave, you're like, you know, you, you know all, all of that stuff, which means it should not be that marginal, right? The Labour Party did better than we would necessarily expect yeah. of, 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 of the area. Um, and she's like, but it, it's not fine, is it? I mean, your constituents are angry about it. Um, yeah, and this is something that I don't really understand why she hasn't accepted because the policy isn't really anything to do with Amber Rudd other than the fact that she's a Conservative MP who votes through Conservative policies. So she could have taken on the job with a sort of, with that change of tone, with the thing that we were expecting from her that would have probably been the most sensible thing as the policy is very problematic. 
there's no denying it. Tory MPs can't deny it. Conservative local politicians can't deny it. She should have said, well, look, we're going to do... We're going to review this, this and this, all of these problems with it that are making people's lives difficult. Um, this is something that they could do. So there's a lot of aspects of the policy that are completely unnecessary. You know, it's part of the wider social security system, but punitive sanctions don't really make any money and they're 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 horrible for people to 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 experience. They could get rid of that. You know, they could get rid of the single household payments. They don't need to have that. They don't need to have a five week delay for people to be paid. It doesn't need to always be paid monthly. There's a lot of parts of the system that aren't particularly necessary, inflict a lot of pain and under the saucer a lot of a lot of these very high profile stories that she could have stood up as the new work and pension secretary and said, We're gonna we're gonna change these. The single household payment, I think, is one of the one which to me at least in terms of unnecessary pain doesn't actually save any money at all yeah. and yeah of all of the i i did not think my opinion of esther mcveigh could uh get lower but it did turn out that yeah i really have not got over oh well you know sometimes you've just got to leave and it's just like <laughs> well, yeah, yeah it just like that kind of the level of sort of sort of baked in callousness is quite uh yeah the quote if he was quoting her right was Maybe get some counselling and then if it's really bad, you can leave, which is such a spectacular lack of understanding or sensitivity about um, people living in domestically abusive situations. I mean, I think it's a travesty that she resigned over Brexit. I think she should have been forced to resign at some point, maybe even over that comment. Yeah, I mean, I do think, I do think it is. Yeah, obviously, we talk about our, our eroded norms quite a lot mm. on this podcast. But uh, it is, I think, deeply troubling to me when we have a situation in which someone who was found to have knowingly uh, misled MPs, who said has said things about uh, welfare which are not true, has said things that are either astonishingly cruel, astonishingly not across what her department does, or both, mm. uh, has been allowed to resign with, and actually kind of get a lap of honour almost. Yeah, exactly. It, it, it's just really troubling for departmental accountability and for, you know, political accountability. Yeah, and kind of, yeah, the, the way it has been covered, I think, is, is a bit troubling. To me, the interesting question about this whole appointment is, I mean, I keep reading people saying, oh, you know, Amber Rudd was was exonerated by the report into Windrush, which is not, I mean, one, we only, we've only we only seen the abstract, so we don't actually know for sure what the whole report says. But actually, what the report does is it clears her of knowingly lying to Parliament. It basically says that she you know, was under the impression that they did not have target for removals when they asked. Mm-hmm. However, the, the problem with that is that it means that at best the case you're making is that she was not across what her department was doing to achieve its main political priority, right? The main political priority of the Home Office under this government is its immigration target. Logically, it must have targets for removals, right? That's why it was in many ways like a slightly eccentric question because the answer really ought to have been, yes, we have targets for removals. My Our government is committed to blah, 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 immigration. And then she should have moved on. Yeah. You have someone who, however you slice it, was not across the work of their department, coming into a department which is widely seen as a basket case across Whitehall, has gone from being kind of an international leader in terms of delivering projects on time to not delivering them. And so it's kind of a huge sort of kind of coming together of someone who has massive questions to answer about whether or not they can run a government, a big government department, and a government department which is increasingly hard to see if it can be 
uh, you know, how, how much the damage that has been done to it in terms of its institutional ability to get stuff done, mm. how much that can be fixed. Yeah, I mean, I think that it just shows what there's such a poverty of talent at the top of government and also of <laughs> of sort of morals. Um, they just don't have enough people to fill these spaces. How many cabinet ministers have resigned now? Um, under Theresa May. Under Theresa May. Is it 14? Awesome. Or... Let's see how many cabinet ministers we can we can get to. So it is um, Michael Fallon. Yeah. Damien Green. Esther McVeigh. David Davis. Boris, Boris Johnson, Johnson. Dominic Raab. That's six. Um, Pretty Patel. Seven. Yeah. I feel like we're probably... Forget- oh, Amber Rudd. Eight. And then a slew of people from the kind of junior ministerial yeah, other ministers. Yeah. Uh, level. Um, yeah, I mean, so... So that's quite a lot. And and that, I mean, just us listing that alone proves the point that... And also the fact that they have to reappoint someone who resigned in disgrace to a top cabinet position just shows the sort of mess that the government is in in terms of how many people have had to resign, how few people there are who are suitable for the top jobs. Yeah, I think one of the things that I've really realised in the last couple of months in terms of, because we're getting to the end of the year, which means looming into view is the horrible moment where I have to go through everything I've said this year and uh, and account for just how much of it turned out to be dead wrong. One of the things that I didn't write this year, but I used to write a lot that I think has been uh, exposed to be wrong uh, this year, is I used to say... Uh, one of the things David Cameron did very well, as opposed to Tony Blair, was not reshuffle too often. Mm. So you had junior ministers who really knew their stuff, uh, really experienced in their brief, uh, who actually got a lot done and were very effective uh, in those in those jobs. And then this was better than the kind of uh, Blair era thing of basically doing a reshuffle every summer. Yeah. And increasingly, I actually think that that is dead wrong. Mm-hmm. Although uh, the flip side of not reshuffling is you do get people like Tracy Crouch, uh, Therese Coffey, um, you know, in the coalition, Steve Webb or Norman Lamb, people who, who really uh, got to know their brief and really did, uh, you know, achieve a lot in it. I actually increasingly think that the flip side of that, well, the flip side of that, you know, from, you can see it, you know, from a kind of, this is the point that a conservative MP mentioned, from a narrow, they said from a narrow self-interest perspective, you cannot defend a situation of party management, which means that by 2016, the leadership candidate, the only available leadership candidates are Theresa May, Andrea Leadsom. Uh, you know, the only viable... You know, so, you know, so that is a failure of, of party management and of statecraft. And I think when you have a situation where we have a Chancellor of the Exchequer who appears to have no political sense at all, yeah. you have a Prime Minister whose political failings we don't need to sort of <laughs> relitigate here. I think that... And you also have a kind of... Yeah, I mean, like, you know, again, as this person said, no one in this place gets up thinking, God, how can I make sure that Sajid Javid or Jeremy Hunt is pro- becomes prime minister? Yeah. And I think that does show how basically, you know, if Cameron had reshuffled at the rate than Blair or Brown had done, you'd have a lot more. I mean, actually, yeah, you know, their big problem, right, isn't because William Hager has stepped down in 2015, uh, because George Osborne uh, decided to go and, you know, have his newspaper and his, you know, eight jobs uh, in 2017. There is no one who they could have, even as an interim, sort of like, well, this person has definitely has definitely successfully run a a department, uh, has no enemies, is not going to stick around for ages. When you think about, you know, occasionally when I'm struggling with the column, I every week I go back through our archives, and it's really striking how towards the end of the major government and the end of the Brown government, you did have loads more people floating around who actually could have been prime minister because they did have the requisite uh, experience. And I think, and you know, this kind of um, 
very weak top of the Tory party is partly a result of David Cameron's failure to reshuffle. And now it's time for a section we like to call... You Ask Us. Indeed. It is the DUP's conference uh, this weekend. Patrick is duly being dispatched to cover it, and which I think is a good opportunity to answer this question from Matthew Woods, which we didn't get to at the time. Between the two of us, I'm not actually going to count up how many party conferences the two of us have been to in aggregate, because it will only depress both of us. <laughs> which is our favourite party? Well, what are our favourite party conferences to cover? Who has the best kind of food, gossip, atmosphere, parties, and so on? I worry that this is going to be one of those sections of the podcast where you and I just agree with each other and it's very boring but Lib Dem conference hands down is the best party conference because everyone's really friendly you can get all of the access and gossip from politicians that you like because there's not as many journalists there and they're always really eager to talk to you and yeah they're usually in a nice nice town somewhere they they can have smaller conference centers so they're not always in that big huge Kafka-esque maze in, in Birmingham. Yeah, they're the best ones so far for me. Yeah, I think, yeah, it definitely does have to be uh, the Lib Dems for, for that reason. Partly, it all comes down to the fact that if you are the third or indeed fourth party, depending on whether or not you count by seats or by, uh, by actual votes, then you are sufficiently keen, A, yeah, there aren't very many of them, right? So they're happy because they are seeing one another. Yeah. Because they get so little coverage, because they are the third slash fourth party, this weirdness, whenever I've written a critical column about the Lib Dems, at least someone who works for that party or one of their MPs will basically, yeah, they, they might send a message just being like, look, I think you're wrong because X, Y, Z. But they'll also be like, but thank you, by the way, for also noticing that we exist. <laughs> that happens whenever I write about the Green Party. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think it's always more the conference than your party than your magazine faces, as it were, is always more stressful. I, I found, you know, Tory party conference doing it for the Telegraph, incredibly stressful because, yeah, it was like a conference that you kind of had to own and do incredibly well. Mm. Ditto, Labour conference, I always feel I kind of like, I don't say I always feel I lose however many pounds and gain more grey hairs, except the sad truth is I do not lose however many pounds at, <laughs> at Labour party conference. I put them on because there's so much bad food floating around. I think my instinct is, is at the moment, I would say of the big two, Labour is a more pleasant conference experience. I suspect that that is partially because of the size of the Tory membership, feeling that you don't actually gain as much in terms of gaining a sense of what the Tory party is like. And I think that's also partially that I think the governing party's conference is always less useful to cover in a weird way. Yeah, I get that impression as well. I think Conservative Party conference, yeah, you don't get as much of a, you don't get as much of a, you don't get those great box pops from people who are just there out of love for it because conservative um, delegates at their conferences don't have as much power over policy as at the other ones. They don't get to vote on policies on the conference floor, whereas the Lib Dems have the most power because while Labour delegates can vote, usually they're sort of strong-armed into yeah. voting the way that they ought to by whatever block is is most powerful with that year. Um, so, yeah, you don't get that sense. Although if you're into sort of the high life, then Conservative Party Conference is probably the most fun because there's the most champagne receptions. Yeah. So, like, I think people can rinse Conservative Party Conference much better than the other two. Oh, yeah, like the, the parties uh, at Conservative Conference are better in terms of the 
you know, kind of a, so, you know, very churlishly, and I will file this review very soon. Um, <laughs> I have uh, been given the task of trying the uh, advent calendar of wine. Oh, uh, yes. And the, and the problem, the weird thing about this advent calendar is I cannot work out what its alleged price point is because it's 55 quid for essentially conference quality wine. <laughs> oh, I, I'm sorry. I, stuff where you like, I really maybe should be better off using this to clean some pans than to, to drink it myself. But at Conservative Party Conference, occasionally you will actually go to a reception where there are things that you might voluntarily drink given a free choice. Yeah. Um, because, you know, there are so many more lobbyists and whatnot floating around. But precisely because of that, with the other um, five party conferences, I mean, you, you, you'll, I've left something going. Oh, I've learned something about the Lib Dems. Yeah. So I feel I learn that every year. I've learned something about Labour. I learn, I've learned something. I've learned something about the SNP. With Tory party conference, because it's such a corporate affair, and they have no, uh, uh, they have no power, and therefore there's just fewer members floating about. You don't. I think in the same sense, gain the same value out of it. Yeah, you just get a hangover. Um, yeah. <laughs> You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Stephen Bush, my colleagues Anoush Shakelia and Patrick Maguire. It's recorded by India Bork and produced by Caroline Crampton. Our music is licensed under Creative Commons. If you've enjoyed this podcast, Tell a friend, get them to listen to it too. If you haven't enjoyed this podcast, keep it to yourself. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.